Welcome to Game Changing Leadership. In this podcast, we will highlight interesting profiles and hear their thoughts and experiences of game changers. What do they do differently and what can we learn from them? My name is Marlene Greva and with me I have my co-host Siri Bushum. Hi and uh, welcome to this first episode of Game Changing Leadership. Today we have uh, with us our co-host Siri uh, Bushum and our two prominent guests Heidi Berg and Berit Svensson. In this episode, we will look closer at whether Norwegian businesses should look towards Asia for innovation, technology and growth. And according to McKinsey, the continent is on track to top 50% of global GDP by 2040 and drive 40% of the world's consumption. 40%. And with that in mind, we ask the question, Asia, are they game changers or followers? Hey there. Let's uh, start with you. Could you take us on a tour, um, a regular day in Shanghai? Yes, thank you very much for having me and and welcome to Shanghai. It's a nice afternoon here. Um, And to talk about today, so I'm I'm lucky, I live in central Shanghai. Shanghai is a huge bustling city with about 26 million people. Uh, but you actually don't feel it. Uh, I, I've lived in other big cities before, like New Delhi and Bangkok. Uh, what's great about being in, in Shanghai and that you really feel in the daily life is that they've invested a lot in infrastructure. So I, I'm hardly ever stuck in traffic, which means that in a regular day, you can actually go from around around the city for different meetings in different locations very easily, either either with the metro. Shanghai has the largest metro system in the world with, uh, I don't know how many kilometers. There's more than 400 stations. Uh, and then they've imposed like excellent... Um, Excellent system for you know, make, making it hard to have a car. It's very expensive to to buy a license plate here, plates for the car, and a lot of the vehicles are electric. Um, and, and then there's of course Didi, which is the the, the Chinese uh, Uber. So you can get the car and get around. You don't have to have your own. And there's buses. And so in a regular day, you can actually go around. Um, and then of course the only thing you need to bring with you, which is this notable difference to many other places, is the only thing you need is your mobile phone, because all these services. If I go on the metro, if I get a Didi, when I pay um, anything, I only. Um, and then during work, everything, and then I mean everything with Chinese, uh, uh, like if you're having a meeting, if you're sending documents, you only use WeChat. Um, and you call on WeChat, you, yeah, you, you book things, you pay, uh, anything can be done in there. So, so it's also an extremely, like this digital integration where I, everything is, is uh, fixed through my phone. Um, I don't think I'm a regular Chinese when it comes to this, you know, the typical Chinese working hours and that. Of course, the Chinese are extremely hardworking. Um, and, and you can tell that for when the rush hour is. It is quite early and they, so around between eight and nine, it's very busy. And then between six and seven in the evening. Um, so so people do work long hours. Um but that I think maybe coming from Norway, I often tell people that when you come from Norway, you have to think about maybe it's Norway that's the 
weird place. <laughs> you know, maybe it's Norwegians that work very short hours and maybe the long hours is actually more of a global phenomenon. So, yeah, so, uh, and uh, China, uh, Shanghai is also extremely international. About 40% of international people in, in China actually live in Shanghai. So, let's say for working language and, and what we do, I, I feel like I'm in a very international community, mostly speaking um, English. And of course, with my, with my Chinese, I get a lot of uh, bonus points when I can, can um, uh, communicate in Chinese as well. But that's not necessary here in, in Shanghai. So you mentioned uh, a couple of things here. You said that the infrastructure is extremely well built. You touched upon uh, WeChat and you said that whatever you are, however you are moving around or whatever you're buying, you are consistently using your phone. So to try and understand a little bit about WeChat, if we take one of these uh, sort of verticals that you're mentioning, could you uh, explain a little bit more about what WeChat really is? Yeah, and uh, yeah, we, WeChat is, if you're not on WeChat, you're not in China. So, so it's very important here. It's actually uh, Tencent, the owner company, um, they come from, from the gaming side. That's, that's what they built up first. And then they started, and this is one of those misconceptions about China that used to be true. Like they started by copying, and now when I say this, you realize how old it is. It's like ICQ, if anyone remembers this chat program, right? Um, they started by copying ICQ. Um, and, and, and then that has evolved. So that's about 20 years ago, right? So yes, in that time, back then it was a copycat. But then they've been evolving much faster and developing something totally unique. Uh, building on learning from Facebook and, and other things. So, so it comes, but like the name says, uh, WeChat is an app that has the core functionalities of core chat, of course, chat. Uh, but then they've built in all kinds of other things, including like your, what would be kind of your Facebook feed where you see what your friends are doing. And then they've included a payment and then they've included all kinds services like you can book your taxi or you can now now there's uh, you know there's e-commerce inside WeChat um, so it's it's built from chat and then just anything that you can connect to it um, they've been successful in in bringing in there um, and now I would say it's it's you know it's very innovative and and a great thing based on that they've Kind of, they've, they've learned from the mistakes of, of let's say, uh, Facebook. So I don't get this feeling of overexposure of ads because their business model is very different. And I think this is core. They do not sell as much ads. They sell services to businesses. So rather than like pushing uh, advertising and selling me as a, you know, just a viewer, um, they sell access to me in, in, in much more sophisticated ways. So the companies, uh, businesses, they pay for their WeChat page and, and like functionality on that page rather than advertising. And I think Facebook, at least 85% of Facebook's revenues are from advertising. 15% of, of WeChat's uh, revenues are from advertising. And I think that as a user, you really notice, you know, this difference. And then they were, payment side, uh, WeChat was extremely smart. And this is, of course, there's these two mega companies here that are driving digital innovation, and it's Tencent with WeChat, and it's it's uh, Alibaba. 
Um, and Alipay was the dominating, dominator, uh, dominating service for payment, but that was on all online payments. And then WeChat saw that, ah, but Alipay hasn't moved into the physical payment. So that's how uh, WeChat Pay was launched for paying in the shop, for paying anything in physical using the QR code. Um, and, and this is a great example of then how this kind of the competition drives innovation here because you have these two mega companies. And then only weeks after uh, WeChat Pay was launched, uh, Alipay had to do the same, even though they had never been in physical retail for payments. So, so that's also we're living in a like in this life here. You're also living in this daily. You can kind of feel the competition between them, uh, which which is very extremely interesting to to be a part of. Heidi, can I just ask you then? So, um, what role does the banks then play in consumers' lives? Yeah, the, of course, the bank. You have to think of, in, in China. The banks are state owned. So uh, one thing is that everyone can get the bank account here, even if you're quite poor, because the the, the banks are not allowed to to only you know to only take in the um, uh, profitable consumers. So everyone here, China has quite high penetration of you know people have bank accounts, but the banks are actually since they state owned, they're not very innovative. Um, but that they are the source of funds. So when I pay with my or my WeChat Pay, both are connected directly to my bank account. In, so they pull the money from my bank account. So, so you still, for most people, if you have like a, a regular job in a big company, you still get your, uh, your salary into your bank account. But then it's, it's very easily connected for, for payment. Uh, smaller businesses, of course, they just get their salary paid even in your Alipay directly. Um, yeah, so, so the, the, the banks are behind there. Um, and of course, they have been a loser. They've lost out on this, but it's kind of a bit different since they're state-owned. Um, and, and it's like with KYC, you know, know your customer. Uh, it's when you set up your Alipay, it's it's still the banks that do the KYC because you have to have a bank account to register your Alipay. Um, and then it's the you know I have to go there the first time with my passport and they check that I am you know a real person and all this. So, um, yeah, so the banks have been struggling, uh, but yeah, they have a, they have a good backing from the government. So they're still okay. <laughs> Do we see the same, um, trend in, um, in Europe, Berit? I think we see a, a different trend than uh, that Heidi is describing because, uh, what Heidi is, is talking about is, is the concept called super apps where you have a lot of apps, mini apps inside an app. You know, all the merchants can provide their services inside the app. And, uh, you know, if you look at China, where there are millions of merchants, think if all of them would have their own app on their mobile screen, you know, that would have been impossible. It's not enough uh, space on the mobile screen and it's not enough uh, storage to have all these apps. And, and what a confusing thing for the users. Um, so, so this is in a way uh, a very good way of providing a lot of different services for small businesses that can uh, get into the app in a very easy way and get access to customers. Uh, I think in, in Europe, um, they are struggling in another way. Um, if we look at the Nordic countries, they have been very good at uh, digitizing uh, the financial transactions. In Norway, uh, right now, we 
have around 3% of all transactions in Norway are based on cash. Uh, if you go to Germany, it's 74% of the transactions that are based on cash. So it's a totally different situation. Uh, so it means that the banks, they have a lot of costs related to all that cash in the economy. McKinsey is saying that one third of, of all the cash uh, in the society is carried by the bank. It's from 5 to 10% of the operational expenditure of a bank is, is related to the cash. So, so it's, it's a different arena, Nordic versus rest of Europe. So it means that the banks in, in uh, the Nordic countries, they are much more competitive regarding cost structure because they have been able to take part of the digitization in the society, which has not been the case in the rest of Europe. So I think in the rest of Europe, the banks has to turn around, have to turn around now to take part of the digitization. If not, they will be you know, out of that business. And that can be very hard going forward because we see all these neon banks, challenger banks coming up. They are taking, you know, millions of customers. They are taking, you know, a lot of new financial, new and existing financial services. They are kind of a modern bank because they are providing everything digitally. They don't have physical branches. But the problem is that they are struggling with the cash flow, but they take away a lot of services, even the deposit from the banks. So the banks will be hurt eventually if they don't turn around. But if you look at the Nordic countries, it's a different situation because what we see in Sweden and Norway and Denmark is that the banks have been able to cooperate for many, many years. They have cooperating on um, basis financial um, infrastructure, like the debit schemes, like uh, to have a national ID, bank ID in Norway, bank ID in Sweden, and NEM ID in, in Denmark. Um, and also with the wallets, they have uh, cooperated. So they are in a way supporting um, the same type of wallet in the three different countries. So I think one of the things that uh, it's, uh, has to be solved going forward is that it's not able to um, transfer money easily between different countries. You cannot take uh, your wallet abroad. Um, that is kind of what the customers are expecting. They are expecting that they can uh, do the same uh, abroad as they do at home. So I think this will be a development going forward. That's quite exciting uh, to follow. But sort of if you think about China, um, what can what what have you learned? Like you you started uh, you you started looking taking vips and and looking into China. What how 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 did that go about? Why did you want to look to China and why did you want to go in and and do uh, and and cooperate with them? Uh, I, I think it was really interesting with uh, what Heidi was saying is that uh, Alipay and WeChat, you know, they are really big in China, and and they are they are also taking uh, a lot of. Uh, business initiatives outside China in Asia. Uh, they are buying up, you know, payment companies like they have done in, in India, for example, and in other parts of Asia. Uh, and their strategy so far has been, have been to follow uh, the Chinese uh, abroad. And it's quite a lot of people from China that are traveling, not right now, but that will come back. Uh, it's over 100 million uh, Chinese um, that are traveling abroad from China. That was, of course, before COVID. And 
the Chinese people, they will shop as they do at home. And there are very good you know, statistics that if they get the same services abroad that I have in China, they will shop even more. And, and if you look at, you know, in Europe, in the US, in Canada, that there are a lot of places uh, and, and um, in Geneva where uh, the Chinese people can uh, buy using uh, Alipay and WeChat as they do at home in store with a QR code. And then they are buying more. So it's a very good thing for the merchants in, in Europe and in the US, Canada to actually been able to provide that type of system. But we haven't seen a widespread um, adoption of that type of services for non-Chinese abroad yet. So I think it's very interesting to uh, watch what will happen with the Chinese players going forward. Are they going to go into Europe and the United States and provide their services to other than Chinese people abroad? Uh, what will we see from them? I think this is very, very exciting. But they have been, you know, very successful. And Heidi, uh, she mentioned it. The banks wasn't, you know, was more for the state-owned big companies. They are state-owned banks. So when Alipay and WeChat started, they create the trust between the buyer and the seller in a very good way. And then you get Chinese people into the financial system. You know, they, they got financial services, they could buy insurance, they, you know, got a lot of e-commerce possibilities, they could take a taxi using their um, their um, super app. So, so it's kind of, it's a lifestyle app that was created, bringing all the people into the financial system. And then you get, you know, Chinese people can easily buy uh, stocks. It's not a problem anymore. And then you get a lot of, it's a boost in the economy. So I think, you know, this is very, very good with what the Chinese um, have done because they have been able to create, you know, innovation in the population and in the merchants everywhere. But if you look at the United States on the other side, you know, they are still, you know, when the, the people have problems during the the pandemic situation, the president has to sign the checks and send them out via the posting system mm -hmm. <laughs> to individuals. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's on the other side of, of, of innovation, you know. So, so I think even if United States has the big tech companies, they have not been able to take uh, people with them. And I think that's kind of very interesting with the Nordic countries because they have taken the population as they have in China uh, on the digitization traveling. But in the rest of Europe, they are more like uh, it's a job to be done. But if we if we look at, um, I think we should pause a little bit on VIPs since that's our our um, sort of national treasure. Um, if we look at VIPs, the first one of the first sort of magic moves that you did was to to do the very un-Norwegian thing, inviting all of your competitors to actually take part in this innovation. Um, and then the next step was to go to Europe and ask for your competitors in Europe to join you and and then go and knock on the door in China. So can you can you bring this story to us? What exactly where does this come from? You no, know, WIPS was 
created uh, as a project in in DNB, and this I was sitting in a board of DNB, so this is kind of seen from the board, um, because both Sweden and Denmark, in terms of Swish and mobile pay, uh, they have been able to create wallets a couple of years before um, Norway started the project in DNB, and. In Sweden and Denmark, with Swish in Sweden and mobile pay in Denmark, it was already a success, a success, big success. It just took off in, in the population. And then uh, DNB realized that uh, if we are not able to be first in the market before mobile pay is entering, not Swish because they are owned by six banks, they are not that they don't have international ambitions, but. Um, mobile pay is solely owned by the Danish bank, so they were able to move out of the country. And then DNB realized that we have to put up a project, we have to be first in the market. Uh, and it was a lot of learning, it was a lot of, uh, you know, we have to be there, we have to simplify. And they found out that the customers, they remember their um mobile number, but not the bank account. So they needed to have a service where you can go in with your mobile number and then convert to your bank account in the background. Um, and it needs to be very, very simple to use. And then uh, WIPS um, was uh, created uh, and they went out in the market in May 2015, just before mobile pay was entering. And they took you know, the market very quickly. But what DNB saw was that they will have problems, even if they could go to other bank customers as well, to reach more than DNB's market share in the market. And that was around 30% of, of the mass market. And then, you know, based on the cooperation between the banks in, in Norway since uh, 1980s uh, with Bankenes Betaling Central, uh, it was uh, very uh, obvious for DNB to get all the other banks in on the owner side and create an own company to get, you know, full um, support uh, for the wallet and spread it out to the whole population in Norway. And uh, when uh, that happened, WIPS was established and also with the ingredients of the national debit scheme, a bank accept, and the national ID, bank ID, into the same company, and with over 100 owners. So this is kind of the situation. And then, you know, after a couple of years, the whole population in Norway of 75, 76%, now it's 3.8 million uh, Norwegians, they have the service. So we took off and, you know, we have to this year again, we are the most uh, recognized and recommended brand in Norway. So, so it, it has been, you know, a simplification that people really like. But there are two moves that you're doing now. Yeah. One is to go internationals. You're opening, you're literally opening um, for the 140 million um, Chinese tourists and the fraction of those who come to Norway. You're opening the local shops to their convenience um, with this new agreement. But why did you why did you choose those those particular uh, competitors in Europe to join to join you on this quest? Did you have to be more than this? one little player knocking on the door and and why did you choose Alipay? You know, we, we saw what Alipay and WeChat did in China. 
and we think they were very innovative. We also saw that they were eager to provide the same type of services for Chinese abroad. And then we were thinking uh, Norway is an attractive country um, as a tourist nation for Chinese people. We saw that it was a huge uh, opportunity for Norwegian merchants to have that type of service. So the Chinese people would probably, you know, shop more when they travel and get the same type of service as they have at home. So that was kind of the background for doing that. And I have a very small and uh, it's a a happy story from one of the shops in Bergen, Juregave Butikken. They... um, you know, when we launched that um, service, it was a lot of um, press uh, coverage, also in China. And that QR code belonging uh, to that shop in Bergen uh, was um, actually uh, public uh, was published in a lot of Chinese uh, media. And then the Chinese, they started to, you know, use the QR code and then they transferred a very small amount of money to that shop in Bergen. So we were sitting looking at the transaction and then we see, wow, small amounts of money coming in from a lot of Chinese people because they have the QR code in the media. So so this is kind of uh, interesting. Uh, You know, it's it's a huge market. And if you can help Norwegian merchants to do business, it's kind of, it's a great opportunity. But I I kind of see there this um, customer centricity here um, that is is kind of in the uh, the background, really, that that's what's been happening. But Heide, is that, can you feel that with everything in Shanghai or in in China? Is like everything very um, customer centric compared to, Europe, Nordics. Yes, I think you're spot on. I, I really find that they are extremely customer centric here. And and I often say, I, I guess m- many of the listeners will have read Lean Startup, right? That's like this formula for from from Silicon Valley on how to, to run this or set up a startup. And, and the Chinese have perfection, like they're perfectionists at this lean startup methodology, not because they read the book, but it's because it's smart. And it's in the center, it is customer centricity, and it's driven here by several things. One thing is this extreme competition. And and I think it's an interesting like cultural observation that we often see competition, uh, no, sorry, copying, uh, copying as something negative, right? So if you see someone who has a good idea, you think, oh, I wish I had that idea, but you know, someone else are doing this in their startup. Here in China, the thinking is, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do it too. Uh, And they don't see that it's not like a negative thing that you copy. And this, of course, for customer centricity, it's like when they see someone else has done a smart feature in their app or, you know, whatever, then everyone will copy it. So, so the adoption rate and the way that things spread, it's, it's really fast. And then the competition here, it's, it's, you know, it's a mass market. And, and I think like Berit mentioned here, the small amounts that they can give as like donations, they, they are also very used to thinking that small things matter because they are always dealing with, you know, the 
companies here have customer bases of tens of millions of people. So a small change, a small, an incremental a few percentages more of your customers or a few percentage they, they buy more from you, you know, customer retention, it, it comes out big. So, you know, yeah, customer centricity is, is absolutely uh, key here. And, and then the Chinese customers are now extremely used to uh, high quality, good customer service, you know, so, so you cannot be lazy here. <laughs> you know, there's only what you, you always have to, to work on improving, improving things. Yeah, it was like I read this morning in a LinkedIn post where a guy said, I've actually, it's taken me like three weeks to change bank go from one of, from an old to a new one and and I guess that's not very customer centric so but it's um it's something to learn from definitely so we see this um I'm what I'm getting out of this conversation so far is that you're painting the picture of China as one of the engines in Asia um, um creating this enormous um um sort of market in 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 all angles for for both innovating, bringing forward new services, testing these services on their uh, consumer base. Why are we not able to do the same in Europe? Is there any reason why we have this, uh, um, this difference in these, two, in these two areas of the world? Because according to Bloomberg's Index of Innovation, the top, you know, out of the top 10 countries that are on that index, six of them is in Europe. And yet I don't sit, when you're describing China and Asia as you're right now, I do not get the same feeling that we're talking about the same type of of of, um, of economies, really. I, I think there are several things, and I don't know how these definitions are. I think one thing that often when we talk about innovation... Uh, here in China, it's not so much this, you know, uh, how do you say, like, it's not inventions. It's not like something new, technical, like Israel or the US are still way ahead when it comes to, like, coming up with a new physical technology. Uh, what China is exceptionally good at, it's business model innovation. So it's the way you make your, like I described WeChat before, you know, it's like that it's not advertising, but it's, you know, the way that they, they structure their service and it's about reaching hundreds of millions of people in smart ways. And I don't know if these kind of international rankings, I have a feeling that, you know, many of them, they look a lot at kind of new technology innovation, like, and, 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 they, and China is not ahead on that. Um, and, and of course, on, on many of these, uh, you know, Norway's far is very good at this innovation on uh, business services, right? So you have these companies like Cognite, and, and these are excellent in Norway. You don't have many of them over here, so so it's also, you know, the, this is the challenge of looking too much at like the daily life and the the um, consumer innovation because that's where China is far ahead. Uh, but many businesses here um, are quite traditional and not so digitized yet. You know, all the big state-owned companies and, you know, Equinor will be a lot more innovative and far ahead of Sinopec here, the, the Chinese oil company. So that's also, you know, there's, there's, there's many things here. But then when it comes to uh, why uh, on these areas where China and, and other Asian companies are ahead, I think Berit pointed to it earlier, right? But like in Norway, 
digital, we were already paying mostly digital with our cards. We, we didn't have cash. You know, it's a long time since we paid with cash in Norway, even before VIPs. Here in China, they, they, people didn't have any plastic cards. They went from cash, you know, so you know the hassle of cash. And then they got the QR code payment. And everyone already had, and, and this is, you know, everyone already had the smartphones because the smartphones here are very cheap because they produce them here in all this uh, Oppo and Lava and this that you never heard of because they're only in, in developing markets. Um, so then when you go from cash to mobile, of course, the adoption rate is very high and very quick. So I think one of the challenges in, in countries like Norway is that things are very good. You know, it's, you don't have this, the, the you know, the additional value for some of these services, it's, it's not so big. Um, and then for the mobile, like that's another thing here that people don't have computers here. Computer is something you have for work, that those who need it at work, which, you know, it's not that many. People only have smartphones. So here it's, uh, here it's mobile first, mobile only. So this also, you know, then you get better apps because uh, developers here, they only need to develop for smartphone. They don't need to develop also a web page, you know, but uh, anyone back home, you know, you have to have this interface for, for, a, for a computer too. Um, so so there's, there's several things that, that are behind this, but I think the main thing, things are, you know, things function well in, in Norway. So there's, there's not this need for, for change. But, but there, I mean, there is, cause I, I sit and I, I wonder, I want those super apps. I, I wanted to like, like Vips is saying, we're making it so much easier for you. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, uh, that it, how easy will you guys make it for us in the future? Because is it because, uh, we, you don't, I'm kind of thinking, why don't we have them? Is it because we don't want to go in competition with others because then we might get unpopular or like, what is it? That, that because there, is a, there are many um, uh, uh, brands that have that possibility where that has enough, even though we're not only 5 million people here in Norway, we, we still have that opportunity. Uh, and, um, yeah, but if you look at DMB, DMB has all of the chances, and they have all the data around us. So if if you want if you want to provide us those super services, you know, hyper personalized services, you can. And yet, is it the laws and regulations, GDPR? What is hindering us in in delivering these services to us today? Because as he says, we are very eager and very ready. I think, you know, we have to look at um, uh, one of the big players in Europe first, um, Klarna. Uh, I mentioned that some of the challenger banks, uh, neon banks, uh, are struggling a little bit, uh, Revolut, uh, um, for example, because they have a cash flow problem. It costs a lot of money to get in the customers. Klarna has a totally different business model. They have their buy now, pay later model, where they are, you know, putting the risk on the merchants. So they are more on the e-commerce side. They have um, 85 million customers right now, 200,000 merchants. And their value is as large as Danish bank. It means that Europe has created a new kind of company, a fintech company that is um, as valuable 
as one of the big banks. And we all know that Danish bank is struggling with the trust. So, so either you have, you have to fix your trust and you have to move around to take part of digitization. If not, the banks will get a problem. So Klarna is a success. The investors really like the business model because when they get the merchants into their, uh, on, on, as a customer, they get all the merchants customer online. But no, they are taking a little um, different direction. They are moving into the super app uh, ecosystem uh, with the Klarna app. They have around 12 million customers. Uh, it's very exciting to see if they will succeed with their, you know, pan-European, also in the US-based um, uh, company. And I think one of the things I'm thinking about is that in the Nordic countries, it's so important for the companies to have their own brand and their own app. So the companies, the merchants, they need to change a little bit and think more like it's so easy to, to get access to the customers. It's so easy to, you know, transact with the customers uh, having a mini app inside a bigger app. Um, and, and even your brand will be shown there. It's less uh, OPEX operating expenses because you share the cost with a lot of others. Uh, you, the customers don't have to download a new app. And, uh, you know, every time you change the app, you need to do a new download. The customers don't like that. So, so it's a kind of an opportunity. But I think Klarna, uh, they, I think they have been inspired by WeChat and all. Pay. And it's very exciting to follow what will happen with Klarna. And with a big valuation right now, uh, I think they have the possibility to move in several directions. So, so I think uh, we will uh, follow Klarna. Um, but there are still... Is that, is, that, um, is that where VIPS is going as well? Do you see that you are building that customer base? I'm just thinking of all the data that you have available and what you can do with the data. And so wh how, why does it take so long to get there? I think, you know, VIPS can move in a lot of different directions. Um, what VIPS uh, has done now is to go into the mobile uh, telephony uh, space. Uh, with the mobile up on the mong, uh, it's kind of interesting um, because um, we are doing everything digitally. We are not selling services uh, via retail. Uh, we can, you know, uh, via a very good user interface, uh, provide um, a very transparent overview of, uh, you know, the usage of data and the cost of it. So we are very excited to see if that is kind of um, a new or another direction, not for the whole VIPs, but that you can take um, another role because you already have payment and ID in the company. And when you have those two ingredients, I will just mention that tw of the 20 biggest company in the world, nine of them are involved in payments. Mm -hmm. It's the same in China with uh, WeChat and Alipay. They have payments included. And if you have those ingredients, I think as a company like WIPS, we can move in many different directions. Coming back to what you said um, a few minutes ago, Heidi, about the why China is leading the way and what they are actually leading the way in. You mentioned 
business innovation within the consumer market. So as a business professional in Europe, it kind of seemed quite obvious for me that I should be spending a little bit of time in China to learn from the best. What do you see, because you have years of experience sort of helping uh, businesses succeed and sort of welcoming them to China and Asia, the Asian markets. What do you see as the winner? The, who, who are the winners in this game? Uh, you mean from uh, international companies uh, coming here? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the winners and, and the biggest problems here, um, the, the winners here are those that fully respect what's happening here and that you have to be very uh, local and present. Um, and, and that's where, you know, you have to also understand regions in Asia, uh, the different countries in Asia are very different. And for China's sake, you should do a very specific like China strategy and have people here and be very locally connected. And the main challenge that international companies quote like what they say is the biggest problem is that their headquarters back in Europe or US don't understand what's happening here. And particularly this comes with speed. They have to, they don't understand how fast decisions have to be made for the Chinese market because of this hyper competition that goes on here. So decentralizing and having local managers out in China who can make decisions and move with the market, I think that's like the common denominator. And then I'd like to talk about something, it's, it's not digital because there's so many digital uh, uh, international companies that do well here, but I'd like to mention another Swedish company that's done very well and it's Oatly, you know, the oat-based uh, milk. And I like this case because uh, they've come to China and Chinese don't normally drink milk. And, and people here, like being vegetarian in China, there's very, very few of that. And, you know, so, so it sounds like a very difficult case. What Oatly did exceptionally well was that they started, they saw the growth in coffee. People in, in China and then starting in Shanghai, uh, there are coffee Every corner now, and there's all these baristas, and it's you know. So they saw that this was a trend, and they had a local team who was very close to the market and just like grew together with this uh, barista culture in Shanghai. And and of course that's very tedious and hard work, but you have to do this kind of grand work in China to to get your brand in like a present you know in this strong position. Understand the customers, you know they adapted the messaging, the packaging. They even made like a lookalike Chinese character that symbolizes milk and oat in one to communicate. So so extremely localization, tedious work, and then they hit jackpot because they managed to get a countrywide deal with Starbucks. And Starbucks, China, in, 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 in Shanghai, there are 600 Starbucks, 600. In, in China, there are 6,000 Starbucks. So when Oatly strikes a deal with Starbucks in China, that's a pretty good deal. And I think this is the, the story I want to tell with this is be very, very close to the market. Hitch on to a trend, find your position and be very close to the consumers on the ground and then if you do that right, there will be a big partner that you can hatch onto, like they did with Starbucks. 
and and then you then it will be extremely good. So so I think that's like the the story. And again, you obviously doing this, you know, they didn't have to call Sweden every day to get to to like get the is it okay if we work with this or that kind of barista here in Shanghai with a mini program on WeChat or you know if if you have explain to the people back home what the mini program is every time you know then that process is going to slow down so decentralizing your you know your china team will have to have quite a lot of freedom um, yeah i think that's uh, there's a lot of learning points uh, from from our swedish uh, oat milk friends <laughs> but it, it seemed like you had some uh, some thoughts about this as well would you mind sharing i i think it this is a very good example you know that high dimension um, and, and I also think I, I, I would like to mention another one, like how these um, super apps are uh, bringing innovation, uh, you know, opportunities for uh, merchants, because there are no restaurant uh, chains uh, in China where you use your Alipay or WeChat app to order the food. And then the, the restaurants, they don't have any servants. They just have lockers uh, with, with glass. And then you open the locker with a QR code you got when you order the food. You just go in there, open the locker and take your food. And then you can probably, you know, eat inside the restaurants. But there are no servants. So, so it's, a, it's a way to think totally differently. Uh, also for for um, the businesses, the merchants, when uh, such innovations in business models, as I mentioned, uh, is coming up. And, and I go back to the importance of ID and payment, because if you have that, you can do a lot uh, regarding uh, new businesses. Yeah, I just wanted to add something uh, to this one, because the, the actually a main a fundamental difference in and why these mini apps um, have done so well this would be a natural step for let's say facebook facebook should easily be able to make this kind of mini app ecosystem the reason they are not doing it or not successful in some of their attempts i believe is because it requires quite an open collaborative business model these mini apps are not made by wechat what they've done is that they've made an open platform where everyone, including myself, if, if I get a little bit better at some programming skills, but they've made it extremely accessible. So what Berit mentions with this, uh, like a restaurant, the restaurants, they all now have their own mini app. And it's because it's so easy to develop and you don't have to like get the verification from someone in uh, in WeChat that it's okay because they've, they've structured like the, the platform to build it. It's it's very easy. Um, and, and you know, of course, it, they do check what's in there for, you know, that, that it, it's legal. Uh, but within, I think within two years, there were as many mini apps as there are in total apps in the um, in the app store. Because building an app, you know, you have to get it verified. It's very strict. It's very difficult. Um, and I think this, this thinking about, you know, enabling as many people as possible to contribute to the, even the development, um, that, that has also been taken to the extreme uh, in a very good way with, with this, uh, this mini-app. So I also think it's something about the, the mindset. Like Facebook, I don't think they have this uh, way of thinking about partnerships. You know, you have to, Tencent is, or WeChat is very open for the partners to develop, to develop it. And like Barrett mentions on, 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 uh, with the merchants, 
Same is in, in Alibaba. It's a very open culture that if the merchants have IDs, if they start doing something and then Alibaba see that, oh, that's, that's actually a demand. Or, okay, can we make the merchants make this themselves? You know, they, they're much more in a, they, they evolve and innovate in an ecosystem where together as partners and not as much as like we're the big guy, like typical Facebook would be. It, it, it's a much more collaborative model. Um, and I think that's actually one of the main learning points. Like if, if Klarna or Vips, you know, what you're doing, I think trying to work in a different way uh, on, on this mindset uh, and, and the model, uh, there are huge benefits in that. The, the, the interesting thing here is that I sit, I sit back with a paradox. So you have, you have um, uh, Amazon on the one hand who are eating eating their partners for breakfast, literally, eating their partners for breakfast. And we seem to think that this is a brilliant way of conducting business. And here you are on the other side saying that if you go to Rakuten in Japan or, or Alibaba in China, they have the exact opposite. They're not strangling their partners. They're literally opening up their platform for 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 their partners and for us as consumers this sounds like a brilliant plan why are we not adopting more of this in in europe or do we have any examples of these types of of um of platforms oh, i think yeah, it's a good question and uh, i also think that facebook can take can take that role as i mentioned but uh, they they you know they started with a cryptocurrency uh, to make it easy to pay between countries, and then they get problems with uh, the central banks because then they will dis disrupt, you know, the central banking system <laughs> across Europe and, and into US and, and China. Uh, and then um, it has been, you know, not it has been a little bit quiet about that for a while. Um, but I think, as I mentioned, it, it's it create it, it's necessary with a mind shift that. Uh, companies think they need to have their own app. They are so aware of having their own app to show the brands in the Nordic countries, maybe also in Europe. So, so it has been, it, it creates a, a mind shift, as you mentioned. And then Amazon is, is coming in uh, in a very, you know, in a way that customers really like, you know, customers like Amazon. So you're always this kind of, uh, it's the customers that decide. But in China, you have a very good system, both for customers and for merchants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I think we will see more more super apps like in, here uh, in in Europe. But it, it, maybe it will spill out in a little bit different way than in China. So this podcast series is called Game Changing Leadership. And I think that we're touching upon a very, very interesting part of it. Um, when we talk about business um, development and how you consider your partners and that there is a distinct need of change in the way that we think about partnerships. I think Vips uh, has uh, quite clearly shown that we are capable of doing this also in in little Norway. Um, when you when you think about game changing leadership, do you have any do you have any reflections on what key components of that 
you see in the ones who are succeeding? It's leadership from the top. It's a visionary top management. Um, it's hairy ambitions. It's the ability to think outside the box with radical innovations, not incremental. The ability to uh, take risk and know what kind of risk you are taking. Um, the ability to motivate people uh, and go in that direction. Uh, to fund up new ideas because you are on the top, you, you have all the possibilities to do that. Uh, to create a strategy and allocate resources, both in terms of people and money, in that direction. And that can only be done uh, from top management. So I have seen the internationalization of, of Telnor. Uh, I have seen Televerke moving from one of the worst telecom network in Europe into one of the seven um, biggest mobile operators in the world. I have seen the creation of VIPs. So this is based on what I have seen, what is needed. Heidi, from your side? Yeah, and I think this is this is where like living abroad, uh, for me, <laughs> Norway, Norway is a, is a village, right? <laughs> the world, the world is so big and the future, you know, the population of the future, they, they live here in Asia and, and increasingly in, in Africa. And, and for me, game changing leadership is is taking these the, the new generations um, seriously and understanding their needs. And, and that's why I find so much here in China fascinating, because um, you, you're really looking towards the it's still a developing country. Uh, there are still poor people, the low middle income class in China. It's, it's they are not the ones that come to travel to, to Norway yet as tourists. And and I think the leaders here that take them seriously, which which is really, you know, taking the future uh, into account and having really long term visions. And of course, that's something China is good at from from the government side as well. I think business leaders here who look long um, see this and and then Europe I'm, I'm sorry Europe becomes quite rather uninteresting uh, when when you think about Africa and India and and the next generations there so for me the real game changers will will be those who can connect this with with of course the the sustainable future that we need and building these models for them where um, that, that can sustain on all aspects of, of environment and equality uh, and so on. And I think that's, and, and the way visionary, you know, that, that some of the companies here, I'm, I'm extremely impressed by Alibaba and how they do that, that the only way they can move as fast as, as they do is actually decentralizing quite a lot of the uh, decisions because, you know, people have to move fast on the ground. So they have very, very strong visions and missions that, that, that people, when you talk with, with people that work in Alibaba, they will, they literally use it as a guide in their small decisions, which makes them run very fast. And, and I think that's game changing. Uh, and, and since that, that vision is to make, make it easy for everyone to do business, well, then they're very good at making this easy for um, rural population in China at the moment, which, which is excellent. 
Sidi, you have um, worked years and years on in Google and now in Huawei. Um, what are your uh, experiences when it comes to game-changing leaders? I was just sitting and thinking about it um, because I've just been in Huawei for about nine months, so uh, compared to 12 years at Google, so it's kind of a little bit unfair. Um, haven't been to China yet, haven't met even my own leaders, but I think what I find quite interesting is that I come from now Google and Huawei are both uh, very sort of ahead when it comes to innovation, but in different ways. And a very different leadership, but still there are a lot of very similar aspects. So, um, and, and I find that very fascinating. But I think sort of to what Berit said, um, there is this uh, willingness to um, to put a lot of, of effort and, and investment into R&D. Um, it is the uh, customer-centric uh, approach. Um, while Huawei maybe is looking more at the 10% rather than the 10 times, they still make sure that they develop um, better products for us as consumers. Um, and, and it was when Heidi said um, copying things is not something that is embarrassing, but it's something that you just do really well. And I can, I can recognize that in Huawei in a, in a, in a good way. Uh, it is so, it's, it's this all about this, these relationships, um, being local, understanding uh, the consumer. So after 12 years sort of seeing how Google has grown and become this uh, amazing company. But um, I think that looking at Huawei and how the customer is really the boss, like if the customer asks for something, then they would throw everything they have in their hand and, and, and make sure to facilitate. So sort of when I now come and I say, we're not, Huawei is not here to win, we're here to actually provide you with services so that you can create better deals or uh, better solutions for your customers. I think that's a very opposite than, than, than Google, even though Google wants to help their businesses as well, but it's in a different way. So um, that is just fascinating for me. I think there is, obviously there are many ways uh, game-changing leadership is uh, is done in different ways. Um, it's like there is not one way to roam, um, and it's um, there's a lot of learning learning in that. Um, I think um, one of the things I am fascinated by is that uh, it's important to have different roads to the end game. So not sort of looking at R and D, how Huawei now works very closely with the universities, for example, so that and at the same time try to maybe solve the same problem internally so that you kind of get support from the ecosystem around you. Um, it's just very, very fascinating. But I'm still, I'm, I feel like I, I am in university myself, uh, basically. So um, ask me in a couple of years um, and I'll uh, have a more uh, fair answer maybe. But uh, that's a perfect segue to um, sort of um, wrapping up this episode. Um, Berit, what would you, what, what is your, what are your key takeaways from today's discussion? You know, I, I think um, that both Asia, Europe and US will develop in a different way because they have, you know, different background, different markets. 
So, so I don't think we will see, you know, I, I think we will see a lot of, of differences between uh, those regions going forward. Uh, but I think, you know, that China is leading the way uh, in in the financial service development, no doubt. Uh, the US, uh, they have uh, the big techs, uh, but they don't have the population with them. <laughs> and I think there is a huge job to be done in Europe to, to take part of the digitization, either if it's the neon banks or Klarna or, or the banks that will take that lead. And the Nordics, they are in the forefront uh, of digitization. Uh, so, so it's a kind of uh, an interesting picture going forward. Heidi, what is your key takeaway from today? I think it, it's like uh, Berit, Berit was saying. Um, here, uh, one of the most like uh, common notions about China is that it's uh, socialism with the Chinese characteristics. So here, anyone who's like a China saying anything about China, we always say with Chinese characteristics because <laughs> there's always something different here. And, and like Berit said, it will be with Norwegian characteristics. You know, you'll have super apps with Norwegian characteristics and you'll have payment, mobile payment with European characteristic. Um, yeah, it, it will be different models because we come from different starting points and, and the future and where we're going and, and what, what it's going to look like will, will be different. Um, my, well, I'm very happy about this, that these dialogues, you know, there are more of them and we need to have them. And we need to, the only way to understand something, well, the only thing to understand something better is to have more dialogue and discuss like we've done today. So, um, so keep up this, this kind of good uh, discussions, I think is, uh, is uh, very important going forward. Siri, what would you... Uh what would you bring back home? I learned a lot. Um, I um, I will uh, definitely watch out for Klarna and what they are doing in the digital space. Um, I uh, I think what Heidi told me um, a lot sort of confirms some of the things that I am learning about the uh, Chinese culture, especially the sort of the local bit where you say you have to be local. That's kind of one of the things I said and, and I feel in my internally that I need to, to get over there. I need to understand um, and I need to make um, in a weird way them understand how uh, Europe works because we are bringing a lot of this to Europe. So um, uh, I, uh, and then I think, um, as Berit said, there are so many, uh, there are so many ways to solve the challenges that we have ahead and they will be solved differently. I definitely hope that there will be room for more players than only a few. And that may be the uh, ecosystem that Heidi sort of uh, talks about on how uh, you create open platforms for, for everyone to be part of or everyone to contribute. I mean, looking at, um, look at Android, for example, it would never have been where it is today without the possibility of everyone being able to, um, to, to jump in. Um, and I think we need that um, moving forward. And with that, I think we close down for today. Thank you so much. This has been Game Changing Leadership, a podcast brought to you by Oslo Business Forum. We hope you enjoyed it. Share the podcast if you found it valuable. 
and be sure to listen to our next episode if you want to discover more about game changers and what we can learn from them.